Good morning, everyone. Let's all open in our Bibles to uh, Mark 6. We're going to be going through verses 30 to 34. It's Mark 6. In your pew Bibles, that's uh, 841. So one of the benefits of being a uh, being the worship leader here is that, and especially with being able to sing the psalms, is that I feel so blessed because week by week for the past two years since we've been doing that, working through the psalms, I get the psalms, the word of God embedded in my head. And so oftentimes I'll be humming a tune, um, like before the throne of God above, or something like that that we all know, holy, holy, holy. But since we pair psalms with those tunes, I'm not singing those hymns. What I'm singing is I'm singing the psalms in my head, and I have those words, I have his words, his words of protection, staying with me throughout the day. And I feel so blessed. And one of the things that I found uh, is that one of the most predominant themes that we often neglect in the Psalms is the fact that he is our defender and our protector. And he's our provider. There's some pretty audacious Psalms that, you know, Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the uh, shelter of the Most High, he, there he safely will rest. And there's so many different uh, things that come from that, where it says nothing's going nothing's gonna to harm you, nothing's going to affect you, you will, um, you will be preserved, your life will stand secure. And we often neglect to preach on that because it's hard for us to reconcile that with the life that we have. We aren't always preserved. It doesn't feel like it. So... What I'm hoping for this morning, and I trust that God's word is sufficient to do this, is that we will learn how to sing those psalms. We will learn how to be able to affirm them when we read them. We can learn how to rejoice that God is always our protector, even when we don't feel it. One of the things, just one more thing before we get into it, oftentimes, we have a really strange situation where usually the people who are doing well in their life and everyone who is having success in their life, they oftentimes are the ones who have a hard time reading those psalms. What I found is that when there is a lot of good things going on in my life, it's not necessarily easier for me to read Psalm 91. But when things are going hard in my life and I'm struggling but I am depending on God nonetheless, and he's broken me down to where I trust in him and only him, then I can read those psalms. Then they really come alive to me. So again, I'm hoping that we can really examine this concept deeply through his word and that he can minister to us so that we are able to, as we leave here, not be able to rationally work out how he provides for us in all circumstances, but first and foremost, to be able to say it and trust him and say it confidently. 
So with that, let's read Mark 6, 30-34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him that all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many, uh, now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the ability to pray to you and to come before you with this text before us. Everyone gathered here ready to worship you. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that you would just let your word be a fire in our bones. That by your Holy Spirit, you would move in us and change us and shape us because of the merits of Jesus Christ. And it is in him, his name that we ask these things. Amen. So Jesus is a defender. He is your guardian. He encloses and encompasses and protects you from harm. And he is a fortress round about you. And that is where we're going to end today. But before that, before we can know that for a fact Jesus possesses this trait, we need to prove it, don't we? It's not enough for me to stand up here and say Jesus surrounds you like this, room's, that, like this room surrounds us right now. It's not enough for me to say that. And it's not enough for me to say that he is like a blanket for you at night that covers you. That's not enough either. Because my words are a vapor. We need something far more sure than that. So let's look at the only infallible source of truth and hear Jesus tell us himself. Let's look at his word this morning and believe him. In verse 30 of the text, we see that the 12 disciples just got back from their time of proclaiming repentance in the kingdom of God. Jesus was becoming a large presence in the land, and he was becoming such a large presence in the land that now everyone knew who Jesus was. They all knew his name. In fact, last week's discussion that we had that my dad preached was Herod beheading John the Baptist. And the only reason why it was in the scriptures, the only reason why contextually it's there, is because King Herod was hearing about Jesus now. And Herod thought that Jesus' success was actually Herod's sins coming back to haunt him. 
In verse, in verse 13, it says, And they, Jesus' disciples, cast out many demons and anointed many uh, oil with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And in verse 16, it continues, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So this whole story from last week was because the king had a guilty conscience. And when he heard that one man and his 12 uneducated disciples were becoming the most famous people in all the kingdom, he feared that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. Now, obviously, Herod was crazed by his guilt. But this shows us that Jesus' ministry was not a minor or just a local one anymore. With the going out of the twelve, they healed enough and preached enough for the ruler of hundreds of thousands to take notice. Jesus is now the most famous person in Judea. So when the crowds seek Jesus, let's not think of that as a few hundred or a few thousand even that sought him. Tens of thousands from Galilee and Perea, and many more from all Judea sought him. He was getting swarmed day by day. In verse 33 of our text this morning, it says people were coming from all the towns, all the towns. So it's not just one region of this population of millions that really want to see Jesus. It's people from every town, every area, every city, no matter how big or small, that seek him. Also, in verse 33, Mark tells us that the crowds aren't walking anymore. They're not walking to Jesus. They've given up on that. They're running to Jesus. This is no longer a peaceful ministry for him then. On this particular day, he is getting pressed and swarmed by tens of thousands of people running at him to get to him, hoping to be ministered to by him. With all this pressure, Jesus says in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Then they go off in their boat to recover. But they couldn't hide from the great crowds. By the time Jesus and the disciples got to the other side, the crowds were already waiting there for him. Imagine being a disciple on that boat when you come to the shore. It was not just a bunch of ants. Those, that's thousands and thousands of people needing you. There's no escape from the crowds. They follow you even when you flee them. Couldn't you imagine resentment building up towards them? Maybe losing sympathy that you once had for the needy crowds. Looking at Jesus, you wonder what he will do next. And here's what Jesus does. He looks at the crowds and he sympathizes with that crowd. He literally, in the Greek, suffered with them. 
He looked at the countless people around him who seemed to be acting so selfishly and not letting Jesus and the disciples get any food or any rest, according to verse 31. And he chooses to recognize their hurt and their agonizing instead of prioritizing his own. The God of the universe, who doesn't owe anyone anything, chooses to act lovingly towards them because he was not aloof. But he understood and he suffered their lack and their need with them. And that's what the word compassion means. To suffer with. Jesus was compassionate towards this massive, needy, and pressing crowd. And he did not prioritize his own very real needs, but prioritized theirs instead. And here, he fulfills the law of God to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we could do an entire sermon on this, but I will save this sermon for another time. So for application, I won't parse this out for you. I would simply ask that you look at your heart, examine your life, and ask God if he wants you to act this way towards someone else. Ask God if his compassionate heart seems foreign to you. And ask him towards whom you can become more compassionate. Is there someone in particular that God has placed on your heart or in your mind to be more compassionate towards? And if you don't know how to be compassionate towards that person, but you would like to, then ask for help. Ask me, or there are many, many people in this congregation who are very gifted at being compassionate. You, so you, you know who they are. Ask them how they are so compassionate, and they'll teach you. Ask them how. Now, how does this relate to God being our defender? We may get that Jesus feels compassion for us, but that certainly doesn't prove that he would act protectively towards us, does it? So how do we get from the feeling, how do we get from feeling to doing on the part of Christ? How can we know that just because Jesus feels sympathy, he therefore will come to our defense? Well, this passage is not the only passage in the Bible that talks about the compassion of God. All throughout the Old Testament, too, the Lord says that he has compassion. Deuteronomy 32:36 says, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Isaiah 49:13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 49:15 says, "Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you." And Isaiah 54:10 says, lastly, 
For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who does have compassion on you. And many more scriptures teach this. But in the Hebrew, there's something unique. The word compassion does not just mean a feeling, but it literally means a womb, like a mother's womb. Not a feeling that a mother has for her child, but the actual womb that protects her unborn child. So when you think of God's compassion that he has for you, think of him surrounding you. Think of the Lord enclosing you and protecting you. And add to that, that in the Hebrew, there is no difference between the noun, the verb, and the adjective. When the Lord speaks to Moses and says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, he is saying that he, he isn't saying that he will feel compassionately towards whomever he chooses. What he's actually saying is, I will be a womb to whomever I choose. I will compassion them. I will be a womb to them. He's saying, I will protectively enclose and surround my elect. There's no distinction from God's perspective between having a compassionate desire and actually protecting his people. If he does one, he does the other. If he wants to protect you, he will. So do you see the difference? So we can now answer that nagging question that some of us get in our minds. The question is, I know God is good. I know he loves me. But will he show up when I really need him? He may be loving towards me, but will he protect me? I know the word says that Jesus can sympathize with my temptation and weakness and that he is compassionate. But will he actually do something about it? The answer is yes. It's a resounding yes. God doesn't feel compassion towards you in vain. And we will spend the rest of the time this morning understanding how he acts and how he protects. But the answer is clear. There is no such thing as God having a compassionate heart towards you, yet neglecting to defend you, if you are his. An old homeless man lay down on the sidewalk at night. He had, no coat, he had a coat, but no blanket to keep him warm for the night. And a person driving by shows no compassion by merely feeling bad for him. A person driving by will show compassion by pulling the blanket out of their trunk and covering the homeless man himself or herself. God has no less compassion than this charitable stranger because his compassion protects. It's easy, though, to say that God is a defender and not explain how he defends. Because the objection that people will give to our God is not his character, but his action, right? They'll ask for examples. And many of us can think of examples. But sometimes they seem a little bit inconsistent. 
Now, all the examples that we can think of in the Bible seem to fall short sometimes of a reliable defense. The Israelites were defended by God when they, when they were faithful to him. But they were destroyed when they forgot their God and served others. How can we say that God will protect us and even rest in that if we are confused by this and we don't understand how exactly he will protect us? Do Christians not still die from persecution today? Are Christian nations not given over to their God-haters? In our personal lives, don't we often feel as though God has left us to ourselves without his presence for comfort? How are these not all proofs that God is not true to his word? that he does not protect us. And here's how. Let's all turn to Psalm 103.13. It's only one verse, but something special about actually seeing it in front of you. Psalm 103.13. On page 502. This verse is one of hundreds of verses in the Psalms that alone that talk about God's protection. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God shows compassion like a father, like a good father. A good father will defend his children when they need him. But he does not give out whatever the children want, like a vending machine. He is our Father, and his compassionate protection is always mediated by his perfect will. By his perfect will. He will always give us what we need. Sometimes the Lord miraculously delivers his people from the hands of their enemies. Our missionary, Jason, was in Siawi, planting a church where no one had ever heard the name of Jesus before. And a witch doctor ran into the church when he was first getting started with a machete to kill him so that he would stop preaching the gospel and taking all of his good witch doctor customers away. And with no defense, and only the preaching of Christ to this man, the witch doctor was compelled to leave without harming anyone, not Jason, nor any of the people that he was angry at in his town. And Christ defended Jason on that day. Other times, he doesn't defend us in the way that we would like him to. There were many men standing for the truth of the gospel of grace before the Reformation even started. Men like Tyndale and Waldo and Huss were all martyred for their faith because they stood for God's precious gospel in the face of a Roman religious order that hated that very same gospel. But God didn't save them from that. He protected them in and through that. 
He even protected them in and through their death because he preserved their souls. And that is to say that the most important thing for God to protect is our faith and our soul and our destiny. We all know so many people, or maybe not so many people, but it is a common story that people grew up in the faith and they believed him and they had a great family, and then all of a sudden, one of their children die or their wife dies, and they leave the faith. And that is such a traumatic event, but by far, the most important thing for God to protect is their faith, is our faith. Because if we really realize how weak we are, don't think of ourselves as better than them. Unless we are protected and provided for by God, would we not leave too? We need his protection. We need his provision of our souls, of our eternal destiny, first and foremost. And he does not always protect our standard of living or our joy, or even our life itself. God defends us not in the way that we want, but in the way that we need. And that need is always, always mediated by God's perfect will. Remember Joseph at the end of Genesis in chapter 50? After he had been through nakedness, enslavement, slander, and abandonment, he could have said that God had abandoned him. But what did Joseph say to his brothers? He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You thought you were killing me when you enslaved me. But God knew that he was saving my life when he enslaved me. And not only that, but Israel was saved by Joseph's brothers enslaving him. Had Joseph not gone to Egypt, there would have been no provision for the house of Israel when they sought food in Egypt during the famine that would come years later. So in evil circumstances like that, the enemies of God, they really do get to say that they are doing evil against us. But at the same time, God gets to say that I am protecting you and I am providing for you and saving you even right now in the midst of everything. It looks like he ceases to defend us, but sometimes, it looks like he ceases to defend us sometimes, but he is not providing for the fulfillment of our desires. Rather, he is providing for the fulfillment of our greatest need, which is nearness to him. Nearness to him is by far better and the preservation of our souls. So sometimes God protects from tragedy, and other times he protects through the tragedy. Have you ever met a child with a really strong dad? He does everything for that family. He does everything for, their, for his children. Always taking care of them. When you look at the kids when they grow up, and you realize that instead of having Instead of being strong like their father, they were weak because they never grew themselves. 
But God is unlike that father. He preserves us through things that we never thought we could get through. Because on the other end of that trial, we are stronger for it and closer to God for it. As a good father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. He is a good defender who defends us in precisely the way he needs to, to take us where we need to be. Now, how did Christ cover and protect and defend the crowd on that day? Because that's what it says. He was compassioning them. He had compassion on them. And it says that he did that because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do for his sheep? He defends and protects them. So what did Christ do to protect them and ensure that they were able to stand? It says that he began to teach them many things. Christ defended the sheep in the most unexpected way. Not by destroying the Roman armies or the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were oppressing them, but by giving them the word of the living God. Let me put it this way. What good would it have been for the crowd on that day had they been freed from the Roman armies but didn't know the word of Christ? Christ knew what they needed. And so he preached to them. And he knows what we need. We need more of his word in us so that it can have a bolstering effect on us. We need his word in our souls more than we need anything else to help us get through. Have you ever been days where you did experience trials, but you had the promises of God at your fingertips because his word stayed on your mind throughout the day? And you had assurance of salvation from God himself because he says that he purchased you in his word? On those days... Do you wish those trials gone, or are they slight to you? Are they little to you on those days? Are they nothing to you? Are you feeling down or depressed today? God promised you everlasting joy in the future. Psalm sixteen eleven. Are you having family issues in your life? that just break you and wreck you and you don't know how to fix them. God has adopted you. He wanted to make you his. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Have you lost your job? Christ enlisted you in his kingdom with a vocation that transcends that job. Hebrews 12, 28. And do you hate the sin that's in the world everywhere among us and even in us. It won't be there forever. Jesus is a snake killer, and sin will someday be a distant and vague memory. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. Isn't knowing Christ of more importance to you than even getting rid of those trials? See, the reason Christ opts to keep us in the trial but holds our hands and reminds us us of himself the whole way through is because he loves us and he wants what's best for us and what's best for us 
is him and his perfect word that shows us his strength and his power and his compassion vividly. So vividly that sometimes you feel like you can even reach out and hold it. That's what we need. That's what I want. I don't want freedom from trials if I lose my dependence on him. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. And I can only see the Lord clearly through his word to me. That's why Jesus preached to the crowds. And that's why Jesus preaches to you through his word rather than fixing your problems. Because he wants you to see him. He wants fellowship with you. He wants you to be comforted by him. So let's want him to carry us through the trial so that we know how much we need him. And so that our souls cling tighter to his promises that are in the scriptures. We must be able to say with the psalmist, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David doesn't fear no evil because he isn't walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't fear any evil because he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and he has hidden the word of God in his heart. And that word tells him that he has a fortress in God and he has a covering in God and he has a protector. The crowd needed the word and so the compassionate shepherd gave it to them. I pray that we agree with what Christ did. We acknowledge that that is best. And we cherish his word because only, only in his word can we rub our eyes and then open them and then see Jesus crystal clear. Much of the Christian life is finding out how little we actually depend on Christ. On our, on our best days, we are prone to self-reliance. Don't make the mistake of neglecting just how much you can depend on him. There is no trial that he cannot handle. And actually, conversely, there is no trial that you can handle. And I say that with love. There's no trial that you can handle. You may get through it, with your pride, intact without dependence on him. But you will be far worse off for it. Depend on him, and he will get you through to the right place, closer to him, cleansed by his word. As it is written, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Don't neglect his word to you. Rely on it, so that through it, you can rely on your shepherd at any time, any time. So to sum up, how can we rely on him? For the disciples, it was easy. 
They just had to look around and find him. For the crowds, it was a little bit harder to find Jesus and to depend on him. They needed to run wherever he was and not let anything get in the way, whether that be counties or cities or even bodies of water. But we don't have his physical presence here, do we? How can we rely on him? We can rely on him by looking to his word to us. In his words, here's the unique thing. His words are nearer to us and more accessible than it was even to the disciples. It's in our hands so that we can read it over and over and plunge deeper and deeper into his truths. So since Christ thought it of the utmost importance to give us his word as a covering, we should devour it. Not as a rule, because God is making us do it, but as a gift, knowing that Jesus is our fortress and our bulwark, so that we will not feel alone when we walk through the times of physical and spiritual oppression that we all know so well. So read. Just think about what you've been given in your hands. Read it. And in doing so, see your protector clearly. Let's all stand and sing.